Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 15th, 2022. Books have funny histories, funny narratives of their own. When you go to the... Uh, the, uh, the front page of Lit Hub today, you can read about a book called The Mermaid of Black Conch by my guest today, Monique uh, Roffey. Uh, it's an interesting book. It came out in 2020. It's won all sorts of prizes, but it has its own story uh, of how it was published and then republished and reappeared in 2022. So perhaps to begin, uh, Monique, who is joining me, Monique Roffey from... Uh, Ruffy from um, from Mile End in East London. Monique, tell me the, the story of this book. It's a funny story, isn't it? A wonderful story. It's a prize winner, um, and it's a remarkable book. So before we even talk about the book itself, the narrative uh, as a novel, perhaps we might talk about the narrative of the commercial book. Sure. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, it has got... Um, I've been writing for a very long time, and uh, none of my books have got a story quite like this. Um, so uh, it was picked up by a, a reputable independent press. Um, and it was published in 2020, early 2020. Um, but prior to um, publication, I knew that the, the People Tree Press who published the book didn't have any um, budget for marketing, which obviously is essential, but that's very common with independent uh, presses. So I put it to them that I would like to um, provide my, to pay for a publicist uh, so that this book might be seen and get more attention. Um, and they said, sure, go ahead. So I crowdfunded for the money that I would need. I didn't have the money in the bank. And of course, crowdfunding itself was quite an, uh, a thing that not many other writers have tried. Um, so that was publicity in itself. So um, we, uh, I managed to secure a, a, a publicist. Uh, the book also gained help from an organization called Speaking Volumes. And they um, got money from the Arts Council to put the book on tour. So early 2020, I was thinking to myself, okay, this book, um, has, might have a, a chance of being read and seen. And, uh, and then COVID struck. So it was published in early April. And after COVID struck, the book kind of got completely swamped. It kind of fell into chasm, as did many other novels, fell into a chasm. And many other writers um, came to help, help The Mermaid of Black Conch and launching it on various platforms. Nikita Gill, Bernadine Evaristo, David Nichols, they're all kinds of writers that came to not just my rescue, but other, other writers who were having exactly the same problem, like we were being published in the middle of the first wave of COVID. Um, but even with all of that help and all the crowdfunding and all the um, Arts Council grant, I still knew that COVID was much bigger than any book, uh, including my book. So by July or August of 2020, I just assumed the book was dead in the water um, but then it took on a life of its own. Um, so it has been a remarkable journey. It, it started being noticed um, by judges on prizes, prize panels, 
and then it won a big prize and then it was republished and now it's out in um in the u.s how does it feel to have such a, a hit book um in terms of this odd narrative and and suddenly does it acquire a kind of life of its own yes it has very much so it's now been translated into about well it's going to be translated into about 12 languages um the book isn't written in standard english it's written in a kind of uh parlance or a creole english so one of the um languages it's going to come out in is japanese it's also appeared in russian it's going to be published in Croatian and and uh, Romanian and uh, uh, gosh, all sorts of language, Turkish, Polish, and so it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible when when that happens to a book. It it kind of moves away from you, and everybody's really interested in the book. Of course, I wrote the book. I wrote the book a long time ago in 2016 and 2017, but you know to watch it now come out in German and Japanese and Polish many years later it's it's become quite a surreal experience um because people do really love this book and i um i'm flying around europe later in the year to talk about it obviously but it it feels very far away from me now it's like somebody else wrote it it's funny um you've you've written a number of other books some with with a caribbean theme uh, others perhaps with a more english one do you feel do you still feel that uh, the Black Conch uh, book is part of your family of books. What? what how do you yeah, think definitely. the book thinks of itself in terms of your other books? And how do your other books think of it, perhaps with a degree of envy? Because the quality of the writing and the themes aren't that dramatically different, are they? Um, my agent said to me, um, oh, you know, The Mermaid is like a culmination of all the what you've been writing about for years, you know. Archipelago set is a book set um, largely at sea. Um, the Tryst and some of my books about sex, female desire and sexuality, that's in there too. Um, and yet it's political. So my agent seems to think it's a book where so many of the things I've been writing about separately have come together. Um, so I definitely think it's a book by me. I think it's a book where I start to use um, Caribbean English uh, a Creole language um, more liberally and maybe even more confidently. Um, I guess it's one of those books, my other books have taken a lot of research and I didn't really research this book that much. I think it just came together. Um, it had been, it had been, it had been dreaming itself up um, before I wrote it. So I, even though it's quite a complicated book and it may seem and look ambitious I always knew I was on top of it I always knew I was I, I always knew I, I always knew how to write this book how do you feel Monique about it being cool in my research I keep on coming across this term Caribbean novel you are your origins in part are from the Caribbean but you live in London in Mile End in East London you teach in Manchester much of your upbringing mm. was in the UK are you comfortable with it being called a Caribbean novel? And what exactly does that even mean? Um, I am very much Caribbean. Um, Caribbean diaspora, uh, part of the diaspora who live in the UK. Uh, my family still live there. I've spent 
50 years going backwards and forwards. Um, I was at school there at some point. Um, yeah, I mean, my brother lives there. My mother lives there. My cousins live there. My nephews and nieces, my family friends are there. So much of my life is there going backwards and forwards. Um, and I, I, it's interesting because I talk to friends of mine who live here who are also Caribbean writers. And we've all written a hell of a lot about Trinidad in particular. And we often say to ourselves, you know, when are we going to stop writing about Trinidad? And uh, I'm not sure. I hope I, I've got another book coming, coming out of, coming out of Trinidad. Um, it's such a polyglot, um, mixed up place. And there's so much to say about it. And it is a big love affair. It has definitely been a lifelong love affair. Um, and there isn't really one single narrative when you come from a place like Trinidad, uh, which is home to um, people from of African origin, people of Indo-Caribbean origin, Indian origin, uh, European origin, Portuguese origin, uh, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, all kinds of people have ended up in the Caribbean. Um, I'm one of them. I happen to have a family who went out there in the 1950s and stayed. So um, I'm just part of the mixture. Um, and I'm, I am very comfortable with the Caribbean uh, label. It's, it's, you know, it's something that, pe that I've grown into. People put on my books, they're set in the Caribbean. Um, yeah, I am very comfortable with it. Monique, your, your book has been acclaimed by many, many people. It won awards, an incredible achievement. Uh, Maggie O'Farrell wrote, uh, she called it a daring, mesmerizing novel. And uh, Maggie says, you, you single-handedly have brought magic realism up to date. Of course, when you, we think of magic realism, perhaps the first wave or the foundations of magic realism mm -hmm. was in Latin America. When I was looking earlier, doing my research for this, at the map of uh, Trinidad and Tobago, um, it's really close to Latin America. Mm. When you think of mm. yourself as a Caribbean writer and as a Caribbean person, how do you relate to Latin America? Do you consider yourself simply part of that tradition or is it somehow separate? I've never actually even set foot in Latin America. Actually, that's you not true. I've, been to, I've been to Colombia, I've been to um, Panama, but I don't know uh, South America very well at all. Were you influenced we, by the magic, la yes, Latin yes, American course, magic yeah. realism? I, mean, I definitely think so. I definitely think because I've been writing magical realism for all my books. Um, the ones that aren't even set in the Caribbean are very magical real. So I think for me, it's always been something that I've never had to try too hard to do or be. It seems to be an aesthetic that just, came so naturally to me right from my first novel Sundog which is set in in London right through to um, my book The Tryst which is also set in the UK um, all my books seem to just explode with this it just seems to be something that has come very very immediate for, for me right from the word go it's just always been there and I think it comes from um, yes it comes from our literary tradition the Americas it comes from um, all, you know, Juan Rulfo, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Isabel Allende, many, many others, um, many, many other Caribbean writers as well have used magical realism. Um, and also our language, our language is such a, it's a polyglot, pl 
a polyglot place. And our language is a fusion of African and French. And it's a creolized language. So to be from where I come from is to be creolized, is to be mixed, mixed in culture, mixed in language, mixed in awareness, you know, colonial, post-colonial, um, all of it. It's just, you don't really get to stand in a sort of um, square patch of uh, the Caribbean and sort of go, okay, this is, this is where there is no mixture, nothing is being mixed up. Um, so I come from a place where this is just going on. It's in the, it's in the air, it's in the water. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. Monique, I you got I... a great review, uh, as I'm sure you saw in the New York Times this week. Um, uh, the, 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 the review suggests that you explore the legacy of colonialism and enslavement on a Caribbean island, which is, of course, mm. true. You, you noted earlier you're a political writer, but this is fantasy. It's a love story. It's a remarkable book, very hard to describe. Do you see it as one of your more political books or is it just as political as your other writing? I think it's as political as my other writing. If you look at House of Ashes, that is about a coup d'etat. It's about that set in the middle of a political up, up over, you know, overhaul. If you look at the tryst, the tryst is about, you know, is such a sort of all about sexual politics, heteronormative sexual politics between a couple being disrupted. Um, I'm I'm part of Extinction Rebellion. I'm active inside um, a nonviolent sort of contemporary ecological movement. I always have been. I've worked for Amnesty International. I've been politically active in one way or the other outside of my writing and in. I'm an intersectional feminist who's constantly const it comes. I also happen to be very awkwardly, you know, European, uh, white. You know, I'm a white woman. You know, it's the worst thing in the world. So I. Um, I have done a lot of thinking about uh, who I am in the context of Caribbean literature, but I still contribute. And yeah, all my books have been very political. And it's really, I've just judged the Orwell Prize, actually. I was one of the fiction judges. And we just gave the book to, the prize to this book, um, Claire Key and Small Things Like These. And it was announced last night. And this is a really, really political novel about the Magdalene Laundries. And yet it just reads like a story, you know, it's, 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 so what's the big challenge about being a political writer is, is to not be, to be, is to not be didactic. You know, nobody wants a history lesson. Um, we just want a story. Yeah. I know you wanted us to mention a book. This is a great book. Small things like this. Yeah. Well, about, I'll get clear on, on, yeah. on the show. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Monique, I think it's more uh, political. I think it's as political as anything else I've written. Monique, uh, as we talk, I know it's very hot in, in London, in East London. It's about 40 degrees, yeah. I think, record temperatures. I know you're part of a group, uh, a writer friends, mm. writer mm. rebel about uh, part of the ball. Extinction Rebellion. Mm -hmm. How central is environmental issues to your writing and to your politics? And, and how does that play out in the Caribbean, in Trinidad and mm. Tobago, in contrast with, say, the UK, where the impact of climate change is quite different, I think. Um, well, in 2008, which is about 15 years ago now, um, my brother lost his home in a flood. Um, and that was, I think, my first, as an adult, you know, so what am I, 57 now, I was in my 40s when this happened, my early 40s. 
I think climate change came really, really dramatically and ca catastrophically into my family in 2008. Um, I watched my brother, you know, dig his home out of um, an avalanche, really, of mud. And, and he had very small children then. And it wasn't just my brother, it was his whole neighborhood. And he had an autistic blind neighbor who almost drowned. Everybody lost their pets. People almost lost their children. People um, aren't really able to sell their homes. Many of his neighbors left. Um, he's still there. In fact, it's raining very heavily today, right now in Trinidad. And I always know um, when it's raining because my brother will tell me because he's watching the river. And even though he's fortified his house, he's always got to watch what's happening when it rains. And it rains more and more heavily. Um, hurricanes are worse. Temperatures are rising. You know, everything that's happening in anywhere near the equator, it's happening 10 times um, worse than, it's, than what's happening here. I mean, I'm sitting here with the window open and it's 35 degrees, you know, it's as hot here as it is in the Caribbean. This is completely wrong. Um, I need to know where to start with this. So my first complete eco novel was Archipelago, which was written in the aftermath of watching my brother lose his home. He, had, he lost his home and he couldn't sell it. He had to rebuild it. And it's about a man and a child who go sailing towards the Galapagos. Um, and it was, um, there was a very big earthquake that happened in Japan in 2012. And it sent a tsunami around the world, which actually swept through the Galapagos just a week before I got there myself on a boat. So I've been writing um, ecological fiction since I became very aware of what was going on. Um, through what happened to my brother. Um, I co-founded um, Writers Rebel with some friends in 2019, and we have become um, an active uh, campaigning group inside Extinction Rebellion um, ever since. And I could talk a lot about what we do. Um, we basically um, are involved in galvanizing writers to rebel and... Uh, become more aware. We've done many, many events, many actions. We do all kinds of things. Look us up, writersrebel.com. And of course, um, the police have now clamped down. There's been a police bill that's gone through recently at the end of June, which makes it, making it harder and harder for Extinction Rebellion to rebel in the way it does. That's Monique, you teach, um, you teach for a living as well, University of Manchester. How central do you make your politics and the mm. act of political writing in your teaching? Is it central? Well, it's interesting because obviously you never want to um, persuade anyone one way or the other. Um, we've just set up with me and you a colleague. Never? You know, you don't want to convince people that, that your well, version of the world's an important one? I don't think that's up to me to do as a teacher, no. I don't think, I, I mean, I, I actually don't think I've ever taught anybody who's um, consciously right-wing, but I certainly wouldn't want to, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to feel that, well, actually, that's not true. Um, I, I don't think I need to uh, radicalise or politicise anybody who comes to learn how to be a writer. Um, that's not my job. But um, having said that, um, Myself and a colleague at Manchester Met have just set up a green writing elective in which writing about the climate crisis and the climate emergency will be very central to what we teach. Um, the thing about uh, 
green writing or green is that it's not political, it's apolitical, it's cross-party. Um, I don't think anyone could deny it's happening, whichever way. I mean, it's interesting because obviously there are climate deniers um, in the right wing in America, across the world. Um, but inside right wing parties, there are also climate activists. Does that make sense? There's climate yeah, I think activists it does. You, you, on either funny, side we, of the spectrum. Yeah. We, so we've we talked do a lot, have, Monique. You, this first time you mentioned America, we did a show last month with a Pulitzer Prize winning history of Cuba, Cuba and American history by Ada Ferrer, mm -hmm. historian mm -hmm. at NYU. Um, mm -hmm. And she suggested that the 300-year-old Cuba-American relationship could have been written by a Latin American novelist, uh, 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 perhaps one like you. Um, how do you think of Cuba in the context of the Caribbean and in the context mm. of Trinidad and Tobago and the historical mm. tradition that you write in? Mm. Well, wherever there's been socialism, active socialism, it's been stamped out in the region, doesn't have a chance of survival. So Morris Bishop in Grenada, um, Cuba, it's not, it's not um, something America wants, so America stopped it. And also, you know, Cuba had links to communism. It's understandable, but it's incredibly regrettable because um, it never got off its feet. You know, there's no chance for um, uh, socialism to sort of take seed, take root, start to work before it gets it gets um you know turned down it's it's really i think it's really terrible generally um the way socialism seems to have um socialism does work in certain countries if you look at finland or you know the, the scandinavian countries i look at them as sort of you know democratic socialist socialist countries that are healthy working models and then I've seen, uh, you know, we don't really see see it see it survive survive um, elsewhere. Imagine if Russia was a bit like um, a really healthy socialist democratic republic where it really worked. Everyone paid high taxes, but it was just this it, the wealth was spread. It was perfectly, you know, people from other countries went to Russia to learn how how things worked. Um, Russia was a, a place where you know there were no oligarchs. Where you know, it, imagine if Imagine a massive country like Russia or China, where uh, which looked like Finland or Sweden. It's it's hard. Uh, so sorry, I'm taking it away from the Caribbean. I've been to Cuba only once, and it just was such an awful, sad place. Um, a sad place, a terrible place, big failure of a place. Um, and uh, there's so much to say about Cuba. Where do I start? Do you think that the challenges of writing uh, magic realism in a fictional sense are the same as, as thinking with a magic realism about politics or are they somehow separate about political change? Does it require the same kind of leaps of imagination, creativity? I don't know if I understand that question. I was just, I've just, sorry, I've got another book under my mind. Have you read this? Have you seen that? That's oh, yes, yes. I brought that book up a lot of times. What do you think of it? Well, I think this is kind of what you're talking about. 
I think it's crazy. It's a good book. It's a good book, and he's it is a political book, and it's and it's um a book about environmental collapse. But you know, he's taking his son off to all these different planets, um, in virtual time, and I think he's doing something magical there around politics. I think, and for people just listening, by the way, um, Monique is waving uh, Richard Powers' bewilderment uh, at us. Mm. So. Uh, and, and perhaps I you think, might explain I, a little bit more, uh, Monique, because not everyone will have re read that book. It's such a great book. Um, and I think I feel a real sense of his desperation here. I feel a sense of um, he's writing abreast of all the times that we're living in, which is the aftershock of um, Trump, Trump, what Trump did after the last election, which is basically accuse, accuse the American the entire American voting system of being corrupt and being miscalled that he lost the election, the election was a fraud. I mean, I don't know. I mean, to be an American and living in America and, and to be liberal or a Democrat, to watch this happen where um, someone with his clout and his 17 million voters say, you know, reject, reject the, uh, the outcome, reject the, 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 what happened which was, it was a close call, but he lost. Um, that um, is what he's writing towards. And he's, you know, he mentions Greta Thunberg and he's me mentioning that, you know, there's hope in this, you know, young autistic woman. Um, and it's a human story and it's a story of impending. He's imminent. He's in the tragedy of what he's writing about. I think it's a great book. And I think, does he make uh, magic, magical real leaps? Um, Kind of, yeah. He's writing about these planets that he's taking his son to, his autistic son to. Oh, and there's this big experiment happening, isn't there? Someone, this mad scientist experiments on his son and it makes his son well. And then obviously his son can't be well forever. Um, it's a great book. Oh, I don't know. I, I, when I think of politics these days, I, I wonder whether it's beyond me. I, I, I think there's power the likes of which people like me and you we we know about it, but um, it's really big. I mean, when I think about um, reparations for this, the crimes against humanity towards enslaved Africans, when I think about the millions of people who were enslaved and killed, okay, and what is necessary and needed to, in some way, um, make reparations towards the hundreds of years of enslavement, I think, oh my God, what is needed is, is that we stop the world. We just have to stop the world, put the world on pause to deal with this because it's a massive crime that has had um, ramifications that are ongoing. You know, just this, this crime needs to be appeased. But what's happened instead, uh, we don't get to stop the world. We don't get to figure this out. And now we have, um, we're being colonized by, I don't know, the internet, the dark web, by child pornography, by um, we have this terrible problem with climate change. We just have Russia invading um, Ukraine and other. I mean, the, 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 the problems that we live with today are, have in some way swamped so much that needed to be dealt with from uh, it from yesterday. And so when I think about politics now, I think I, I do get completely overwhelmed by how to make things better.
Maybe yeah, I and on top of all that, we got COVID, which you have. A fi final question. You've been so generous with your time, Monique. I really appreciate it, especially since you're not feeling at your best. And again, congratulations on this book coming out in the US. It's a wonderful book, and I think it's going to make you, I don't know if you'll be pleased with this, but you'll become a big star in the US. Um, Oh, you. You, you mentioned the, the Powers book, Bewilderment. The star of the book is an autistic child. He turns mm. the world upside mm. down. It's the autistic child that understands the world. No one else mm. seems to. Mm -hmm. What would be the equivalent of the autistic child in Mermaid of Black Conch? Would it be the mermaid herself? I think the mermaid does have... Um, she comes with a clean slate. She doesn't, she's not modern in her thinking. She doesn't, she comes clean. She comes from thousands and thousands of years ago when we were much more in balance with nature. She, she understands the natural world innately. And I do believe that that understanding of nature is in our collective humanity, in our DNA. It's, it's still in us, it's still in us. So she doesn't come, so she, in a way she's unwooable. It's hard to, it's hard to, um, pay court to my mermaid because she doesn't really understand the rules. Um, yeah, she's, um, she comes clean. I don't know whether I'd say she's an autistic child, but she comes with um, innate understanding of how to be in sync with nature. Um, is she a magical creature? She is. I mean, mermaids, mermaids are one of these magical creatures that we've invented. They come from our collective, collected iconography. Uh, we've been dreaming mermaids up for thousands and thousands of years. She's a woman and she's the ocean, you know, fused together. She's incredibly powerful. 